Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Tonight, we have an exciting panel, as you can see in front of you. Uh, we'll take a look back to the beginnings of African American studies at UCLA with a goal of looking forward to the future. The program consists of two panels. The first, Emergence and Institutionalization, which covers the period 1969 to 1985. And we're going to go until a little bit after 8 o'clock on that panel. We're giving ourselves ample time to kind of flesh out the subject matter. The second panel, Adjustments and Revisions, covers the period 1986 to the present. And that's going to go from roughly 8.20 or so until 10 o'clock. I know it's a long evening, but uh, we really wanted to give the subject matter its due. Uh, each of these panels contains individuals who play key roles in the center's development during the respective periods. The 40th birthday of the Bunch Center, originally called the Center for the Study of Afro-American History and Culture, is a significant milestone. In 1969, UCLA was at the forefront of a nationwide struggle to rethink existing paradigms and to produce new knowledge about the history culture, and experience of persons of African descent. The center's creation as an organized research unit, or ORU as we call it here at UCLA in 1969, established what some have regarded as the single most significant university-based entity in the nation devoted to the study of these issues. Tonight, we take an in-depth look at how this development came to be, as well as what has become of the effort over the years. We provided you with a summary timeline, I think you received it as you were coming in, of key events over the center's past 40 years in order to help you follow along with tonight's discussion. And we're pleased to be joined by so many people who played critical roles in the birth and growth of the center throughout its existence. There are far too many of you to single out by name, but I'm sure that we're going to hear from you throughout the course of the evening and we'll recognize you um, at that point. We encourage all of you to ask questions and or to share recollections during the, the time we've allotted uh, during each of the panels for direct audience participation. Indeed, our goal tonight is to stimulate a discussion, a discussion between our distinguished panelists, moderators, and audience that highlights and fleshes out key moments in the center's first 40 years of development, the opportunities, the achievements, and the challenges. Ultimately, we'd like to end the evening by imagining where the Bunch Center might go in the next 40 years. Okay, now I'd like to turn it over to our first center director, uh, Professor Robert Singleton, who served in an interim capacity from 1969 to 1970. Currently, he's an economics professor at Loyola Marymount University, and he's also been a visiting scholar here at the Bunch Center this year, where he has conducted historical research regarding the founding of the center. He will moderate the first panel, which covers the period from 1969 to 1985. Thank you. For those of you who are alumni of UCLA, uh, this panel really needs no, no introduction. Um, the, um, it would take all of, my, all of you a lot of time to uh, state their accomplishments because uh, I have a four, page, four or five page uh, uh, bios for each of, each of them. I won't go through all of them. <laughs> I'll just give you some highlights. Uh, uh, Dr. Young is um, uh, our first chancellor, uh, the chancellor who was, who was uh, the 
on duty when I first came here as a student. In fact, he was a vice chancellor at that time. He was um, a vice chancellor under, under um, Chancellor Murphy. Since retiring after 29 years as a UCLA chancellor, he served as the president of the University of Florida for five years and president of the Qatar Foundation for two years. I, I, that was a surprise to me. I didn't know that. That, uh, that was very interesting. I wish we had time to go into that. Um, um, and he is now CEO of MOCA, as many of you know. Uh, he's, a, he's an emeritus prof professor of poli-sci. Um, and um, Jerry Gibbons, who was also supposed to be on the panel today, uh, unfortunately got caught in the storm and uh, was uh, unable to catch, a, catch his transportation in. Um, I'm going to just introduce them all, and then I'm going to give them uh, some time to um, say some things about what it is that uh, they feel the, um, the, the center has meant to them and, and what they think is, um, is good ways to think about where we ought to be going starting now. Virgil Roberts is, uh, is a graduate from Harvard Law School. He has served uh, on and many UCLA. <laughs> and, yes, and UCLA. That's, that's in there. I'm not going to say everything that's in here because it's going to take too much time. Um, Virgil, um, our paths has crossed many times, including some of the boards he's on. He's on he was on the Coral Board, which my wife and I had a lot to do with. He's now a partner of the law firm that he founded, uh, which is, uh, I think, currently involved in the, in the Michael Jackson State Settlement. Is that right? No, no. Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> tell us, you'll, you'll tell us about that. I'll tell you if, okay. if people are interested. Okay. The, um, <clears throat> Malifia Sante is, is, the, is the first, what I call the first peacetime director of the center. <laughs> and, and the person who's, who's, who, saved, who saved an offer by Sage Publishers to the center to, um, uh, to, to um, establish the first black studies, center, uh, black studies journal. And he's going to, I'm sure, talk a lot about that. If he does, I'll ask him some questions in the interim. Um, that was one, that one of the most, uh, one of the first of the 10 proposed activities in the, in the uh, center proposal that we really got going uh, uh, in the beginning. And um, he's, um, he's now at Temple University where he has established the first doctoral program in black studies, I believe. Am I right about that? Okay. <clears throat> Mary Jane Hewitt was our all-around angel. Mm -hmm. uh, she, was, she was involved in more center functions than anybody. <laughs> then I hope she gets a chance to talk about uh, some of them, uh, because were it not for her, uh, the, of the 10 functions that we were supposed to, we were supposed to implement, we probably, will, probably would have done only about half of them. Um, and and I'll, if she doesn't tell you about them, I'll, I'll uh, stir her to uh, talk about some of them. <clears throat> and um, I will simply now um, turn the, the, uh, <clears throat> the mic over to, uh, to Chancellor Young and let him give us a, a few words about uh, what was happening when he was here, what he thinks the, the importance of the center is, and where we ought to be going as a center now that, um, now that we're at this 40th um, uh, landmark. Thank you very much, Bob. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a historian. I, I'm, one of the things I'm very bad at is dates. 
And I guess that's one of the reasons why I became a political scientist rather than a historian. Um, uh, so uh, some of the sometimes I wonder if, if these things really happened at the time they're su they are supposed to have happened, or if those were really the people that were there or not. Uh, but uh, whatever uh, the, the case may be with regard to those facts, uh, things did happen. They happened in 1960. 869, and uh, they've kept on happening ever since. And uh, as I've said more than one on more than one occasion, and more than one occasion during this year, um, those were unusual days. Um, they are days which, however, bring back extremely pleasant memories for me, along with some heartache. Um, they were some of the most complicated years I think we've lived through, uh, in, uh, at least in my lifetime. And my lifetime is stretching to be pretty long now. I'm uh, talking about, I, 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 I find myself giving the wrong age. My wife said the other, I said the other day I was 79, and my wife said, you're not 79, you're only 78, and you should know it, because you, you came up with a mechanism for, for, for telling people your ages. When you were 76, you said that was your trombone year, and 77 was my sunset strip year, and, and, and this year is my platter year. Some of you remember 78. So uh, I should remember. But in any event, that things that goes back a long way. Uh, but of all the things that um, are indelibly etched on my mind, uh, those days and what happened uh, certainly uh, are a major part of that. It may not be the exact location. It may not be the exact people, or it may have been a different date from other, what other people think it, it is, but it is, is, a, is a date and a period in which things happened. Things happened that were important. Things were happening around us that were important. They are now, too. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll come out of what's happening now as well as we came out of that period. Um, but things were happening. There was a lot going on. There were a lot of pressures. There were a lot of, of uh, efforts that were sometimes not being rewarded. Uh, and there was a lot of discontent. And in, uh, as a part of and growing out of all that discontent, uh, UCLA, I think, began to come together around the realization that there were things that needed to be done and they were unusual things, they were novel things, they were things which everyone would not agree on. And I'm, I'm reminded especially of that latter point uh, because of something that is happening tomorrow. Uh, two of my dearest and closest friends at that point in time were Dick Longacre and Bill Gerberding. Now, Dick Longacre had been a professor of mine at the University of California, Riverside. So we go back to that period. And he then went off to back to Cornell, where he'd come from, and then came to UCLA. And then Bill Gerberding and I met 
when we were in Washington, D.C. as American Political Science Association Congressional Fellows and ended up being back here in the Political Science Department. And when, when the, the two of them happened to be on sabbatical, and they were in, in London, and uh, they're people I admire tremendously. Bill Gerberding is one of the people I admire most among the people I know in this world. And when he heard what we were talking about doing, he just jumped all over me from abroad and said, uh, you can't be talking about that. You're giving in to the, to the pressures. You're giving in to the Panthers. You're giving in to this, to that, and the other thing. Well, the Panthers were involved, but uh, there were other people involved as well. In any event, uh, there were, these were not times when everyone felt alike. Now, you, you would not find a more supportive person about what was done at that time in the world today than Bill Gerberding. But uh, that was not the case at that particular point in time. But we, we were prepared at UCLA, and it's not just me, it's a lot of people. I had, I had to convince a lot of people. But we did convince a lot of people that there were things that needed to be done which were unusual. There were things that needed to be done because they needed to be done. As Martin Luther King says, it's always right to do what's right. And I think that is what was done at that point in time. And I'm just so happy that I was here to be a part of that history and to see what has happened since. Now. Uh, I think we need to begin thinking about the future. I'm sure people are. And maybe some changes need to be made uh, with regard to what is done in the future. We don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over. Uh, at the 40th anniversary is a good time to, to look back, but it's also a good time to look forward. And I hope we do some looking forward and, and, and come away from that look with a stronger um, more forward-looking, more currently uh, important uh, um, program than even what exists today. But I, uh, I don't want to spend much, any more time than that. I think we ought to have some, an opportunity to talk and an opportunity to have some interchange with you. But I, I just want to leave you with my, my view of, of, of the historical moment, which is a larger view. It's not the details although most of the details I think that I see other people uh, writing down are probably pretty good. Thank you very much. So um, if, um, if I can now ask uh, uh, Malifia Santi to, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Virgil Roberts is next on the book. Well, it, it's, it's interesting to be back here again after so many years. I can't believe that it's been more than 40 years that I was a student here. Um, and as, as is the case with most students, I probably remember that period of time differently than, than Chuck remembers it, because I really remember it. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I think, you know, one of the things that it's really difficult to do when you're 40 years uh, forward is to think 40 years back. But, you know, when, when I came to UCLA, I transferred from, from junior college, uh, I was living in America where there was no black caucus. There was only Adam Clayton Powell. Um, uh, I remember I was living in America where most black people couldn't vote. The Voting Rights Act wasn't passed until 1965. Um, 
I was living in America where if there was a black person on TV, there would be a telephone tree where people call it up and say, turn on Ed Sullivan. They got this little blind boy with a harmonica, you know. Um, and, you know, there were not black people in commercials. There were not black people on TV. Uh, I was a student at UCLA when we had our first black homecoming queen, and the Westwood merchants refused to give her any gifts. Um, you know, so so it was it was a, it was still an America that was in the midst of fighting apartheid. You know, Martin Luther King was still alive, and there were still demonstrations, and there was still a question about what was going on in America. Now, I came to UCLA because I wanted to be a foreign service officer. And Ralph Bunch had gone to UCLA, and, and you know, I grew up in, in a family. My folks were migrant farm workers or sharecroppers in Texas. Neither of my mother or father finished elementary school. So I read to create, you know, like images of what I wanted to be like. And I read about this man who won a Nobel Prize. I said, I can do that. And he went to UCLA, and I said, I'll go there. Um, so, so I got here, and I actually went to work in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 67 in an internship with the Voice of America. And that was a transformative year in the history of America. Uh, I had a job. I was working for the Voice of America, and I did news, and I had a jazz show. And because I was doing news, it really, it really focused me in on what was happening in America, what was happening in Vietnam. That was 1967 was a year in which we did a ramp up of troops. 1967 was a year there was the Five Days War with Israel and all the Arab countries. Um, where, you know, the, the Egyptian army and the Arabs, they marched across the Sinai Peninsula. But more importantly, 1967 was a year there were over 100 race riots in America. That was the year there was Newark, there was Detroit, there was New York, there was Washington, D.C. 1967 was when the autobiography of Malcolm X came out. 1967 was when um, Charles Hamilton and Stokely Carmichael wrote the book Black Power. And so what I remember about that summer of 67, it was transformative in my life because I felt like W.E.B. Du Bois and the souls of black folks. Like, I grew up in Ventura, uh, which when I grew up, it was a small town that was overwhelmingly white. I went to a high school in which there were 15 black kids out of about 1,500, 1,800. I came to UCLA, and you could go for days and not see black people unless you went to the coop. Um, because there were only about 150 black students at UCLA. Of that 150, about 50 were African. There were about 100 African-American students who were here, and most of the guys were athletes. There were only about 10 of us here who weren't. Um, And so uh, I was writing for Voice of America, and I said, you know, uh, looking at what's happening in America, there was a sense like America was burning up and that something had to be done. And so I came back to UCLA after my internship, and I said, you know, I can't be a foreign service officer, and we as students have to try and figure out how can we begin to deal with the problems of urban America? And what are the resources that are at our, you know, that, that, that we can make use of? Uh, and one of the things that I think now, by the way, I think this is important for the future of the center, is that 
uh, universities are seats of study and research. And the idea that came to my mind and some other students at that time was how can we begin to get UCLA to focus on what's happening in black America and begin to use the power of study and research to come up with real-world solutions so that we can begin to change the course of life in black communities. And that was economically, that was politically, that was education-wise. What, what can we study? What can we learn? What can we advocate and replicate? Because many of the things that end up with policy decisions by legislators and others, it really is formulated first by people who do study. Why are we talking about climate change? Because a lot of scientists have done study on climate change, and it eventually impacts policy. So we came back, or I came back, and uh, I found some fellow Wayfarers, and, and we started a black student union. Uh, and the idea was we were going to become activist students. Well, one of the things that you realize when you're a student is your time in the university is transitory. Universities are essentially collections of scholars. They own and run the university. So if we were going to change what the university did, we had to get uh, administrators and faculty members who had an interest in the black community that would be at the university so that they could begin to really address what we saw as problems in, in black America. So as we begin to talk with, with faculty members and stuff, you would have people say, well, there's no such thing as black science. You know, there's no such thing as black history. They're just history, you know. Uh, and so this whole notion of black studies, that is an illegitimate academic concept. So, so one of the first things I'm kind of skipping through, one of the first things that we did is we actually created a course uh, to try and demonstrate that, in fact, there was some intellectual content to studying things that were of importance to the black community. And we created a class called CSES 102, the black man in a change in American context. And in that course, we invited a number of black scholars. We had Ken Clark, who was a psychologist. We had Leroy Jones, who was a poet. We had Sinclair Drake, who was an economist. We had a number of people come in and talk about different areas that surveyed sort of the black community. That was our jumping off point to then create a program for, for, for black studies. Our idea of doing an organized research unit as opposed to a department was the fear that if you had a black studies department, it would become the ghetto department. Um, and rather than being, having scholars who would study economics and politics and sociology and all the different things that we thought were of importance to the black community, by having an organized research unit, you could, you could recruit faculty and then salt them across the university. So they would be in every department. And that would allow every department to have the influence of a black face and a black presence. So when they sat around and talked about what's important, what do we study, what do we want to advocate, it wouldn't be, well, there's the black, the black department. It would be all departments. And so that really uh, was sort of the intellectual underpinnings of what really led to the creation of a proposal for the African American Studies Center. So that's brief history. Now we'd like to hear from Malipi Asante. Uh, Malipi. Yeah, thank you very much, Bob. 
thank you very much also, uh, Darnell Hunt. I always say that, um, you know, it's, this is the, uh, in 40 years, this is the first time I, I've been invited back to UCLA. So I must have done something to, to be invited back. So I want to thank you very much. I also want to thank um, uh, Chancellor Young um, and C.Z. Wilson, uh, because in many ways I always tell them that they were really mentors to me, and C.Z. particularly was my mentor and still is my mentor in many ways. So I want to thank him also. I always, uh, all over the world, I tell people about this great guy, C.Z. Wilson, who was from Mississippi. And since I was from Georgia, I identified with him when I came to UCLA. Um, I got here before, he, uh, he got here in, I think, 67. I got here in 1966 as a graduate student in communication. Uh, and I think uh, it was at one time, there were two of us, and then uh, ultimately there was just me and communication. And in fact, uh, we were in this building, uh, this, this Arois Hall. Um, and one of the interesting things that uh, occurred to me early on in 66 was that in order to at least have some impact on the campus, I wanted to do what I had done in my undergraduate years, and that is be involved in, on the campus. So uh, we had at UCLA at that time, uh, some people may remember this, the Harambe uh, organization. <coughs> I don't know whether uh, people like Tony Cook and Ayuko uh, Ababu and other people uh, were in, in that organization. Very, very, very uh, early on. Um, and then uh, I was later uh, the president of SNCC on campus here. Uh, the, SNCC, the SNCC chapter uh, was responsible basically for, we, we sold buttons and we sent people to, to the South uh, in um, uh, 1966-67. So, so I was actively involved in that. I came, finished the PhD, and went away to uh, Purdue. <clears throat> While I was at Purdue, uh, apparently uh, things were still going on here at UCLA. Um, uh, Chancellor Young uh, announced, in fact, uh, and in fact, I think uh, uh, Dr. Wills, uh, CZ may have run this organization, the Faculty Development Program, uh, in which 42 African American faculty members were hired almost in two years, which was a record. It's phenomenal in, the, in, in uh, high education in America. Um, and Angela Davis was the first, but then there were many others who came in that same year. Uh, there were people like James Pitts, uh, Berkey Nelson, whom I saw here earlier, uh, was one of those people. Uh, I was one of those people. Uh, I had been a student at UCLA, went away, and then one of the beautiful designs of this project was if we are able to graduate PhDs who are good enough to be uh, asked to teach at other universities, why not keep our own graduate students? Which was a really brilliant idea because that meant that you were not sending them to Purdue or Temple or Harvard, you were keeping them yourself. And, and basically, uh, C.Z. Wilson, I think on an airplane, if my memory is correct, said, you got to come back to UCLA. So I came back to UCLA uh, in 1969. Actually, 
Uh, I, I was at Purdue from, uh, from the fall of 60, uh, 68, 68 uh, to uh, the spring of 69, came back to UCLA. And at that time, when I came back to UCLA, uh, a couple of things had happened. One, I had missed the uh, shooting in Campbell Hall. I was not here for that. Um, and so that, uh, in a way, it, it worked uh, in some ways to uh, my advantage uh, by not being involved either with the Panthers or with the US organization. And in fact, for me, having uh, come out of the field of communication, I was very much interested in this whole idea of peace and how do you bring peace and what were the, the major and the uh, arguments and central arguments and so forth. Um, and I, I probably, uh, in my early days in high school in Nashville, Tennessee, was very actively engaged with the integrationist movement, with Diane Nash, for example, who was very, very big and uh, leading protests in Nashville. Some people I see knew her name, but she was very, very dynamic in the, in the uh, 1950s and 1960s. So there were was, there was these kind of people. Uh, uh, and then, of course, Stokely Carmichael, uh, who was an inspiration and a, and a life, lifelong friend of mine he was until he died. So it was a very, this is a very, very active time. At UCLA, this was very active because uh, a couple of things happened uh, in 68, of course. And the biggest one was uh, the, the death of King. Uh, the death of King, I was walking right here, I was right here at Campbell Hall, actually walking uh, uh, out of the park, out of the uh, parking lot. Uh, when I heard um, that King had died. So uh, Martin Luther King's death had a tremendous impact on UCLA's campus, and people were quite, um, uh, quite active around that death. And so, of course, then you had uh, the deaths of um, uh, Butcher Carter and John Huggins. So the, 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 this was a dynamic campus. Everything was happening, and there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of debate and so forth. So by 1969, when I came back, and uh, Bob Singleton uh, had been a graduate student in the economics department, and he was acting director of the center uh, while he was um, uh, a graduate student in economics here. And there was also a point, and, and I want to just talk a little bit about the timeline, because I think it's important to talk about that timeline. There was a point, because the timeline, the way the timeline is, that you have five directors in 1970. That is not true. You didn't have five directors in 1970. You had one director in 1970, and that was me. What you had, however, was you had, this was a Soviet era. You had a troika. You had a troika of, called an executive council of, uh, of McGee, Glasgow, and Obicherry. And so, so basically, before me, there was only Singleton as the director of the center. When I came in to direct the center in January of 1970, that, the, the, the center then, uh, uh, we, 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 a couple of things we did. One of the things, first thing, and I never told uh, Dave Saxon this, who I reported to directly, and I certainly never told CZ, and you shouldn't have known. Um, <laughs> Brothers came into my office with guns, and they, you know, they came into my office with guns, and they, they, get out of here, it's 40 years, man. Okay. <laughs> two minutes. Okay. I got two minutes. Okay. I, unfortunately, and I have to apologize, I got to take a plane out of here around, I got to leave you here at 
Wow, about 7:20. I've got to I've got to go to the airport and go back to Philadelphia. But but I, I, I but but I won't be long. I really I, I just passed that along. Yeah, I, I, won't be, I won't be long. But the thing is that I had I had a couple of uh, maybe three or four guys come into my office in Campbell Hall, uh, really to figure out who I was and what I was going to do and uh, what I was going to do because uh, there were people who were calling. Uh, to Algiers, uh, 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 to Elders Cleaver, and they wanted to know how I was going to operate. So what I did back in those days was um, uh, I had I always had Thunderbird in my office, <laughs> and I pull out a bottle of Thunderbird and pass uh, some wine around. This is a true fact. And uh, if Deborah Wilkes was here, she would tell you. And we all sat there and drank some Thunderbird, and we, we talked about this. And when they left, uh, my secretary came and told me, she said, Doc, they say you're cool. <laughs> so I said, all right. So, so part, of, part of my task at that point was, as, um, as you probably know, Bob was a much more activist and had been a, a very strong activist. And, and because the things were still unsettled on the campus with different groups, I, part of my job was dealing with the various groups and, and, uh, and, and making sure that you know, everybody was OK. Uh, that was one of the things I wanted to certainly mention. Uh, I'm going to be quick here and just say a couple of other things, and then I'll, I'll finish. Uh, this is I, I, my my autobiography is about finished, and I'm putting all this stuff in my autobiography, so you 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 should you'll be reading it next year, I hope. But uh, the other important thing I want to say is that Bob Singleton was uh, important in initiating a contact with Sage Publication. Um, this was it may have come out of that ten point uh, project. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, he he initiated that contact and then said Malefi. Um, you know, why don't you come and go with me over to Sage, over in Beverly Hills at the time. And, I, and uh, we went over there, we talked. Um, the way the story is told by Sarah Miller McCune, who, who is the founder uh, of Sage, is that we threatened her, but it's not true. I always tell people. She came, <laughs> she said we, we threatened her, and then Bob basically threatened the lady and forced them to uh, create this journal of black studies. But uh, at any rate, in 1970, the first issue came out. The first issue, when it came out, there were people like Vincent Harden, Essien Essien, C. Eric Lincoln, Leron Bennett, uh, St. Clair, Drake, Charles Hamilton, Hank McGee, Clyde Taylor, um, uh, Ronald Takaki, Gary Nash, Alice Magawi, uh, Martin Kilson, uh, Edward uh, uh, Guinea from Harvard. Uh, all these people were, were on the advisory board of the journal. Uh, uh, Roy Simon, Bryce Laporte, who was also important at that time, and so forth. So th there, were, there were many things that I could say about the center, but I am going to uh, recognize the time and just say that I think that in the future, what I would like to see, I mean, I certainly haven't talked too much about what, the, what we saw as a mission at the time. I, haven't, I don't have time to do that. But, but let me just tell you, I think that the center can and should make some connection, particularly with the educational institutions. I, you may already do that now, but I, I, you know, there, there, there's no re reason why the center cannot actively engage 
schools and educational uh, uh, districts uh, to work with, with students. Uh, I, and that's one of the things that I have been doing, I mean, in the last 20 years. I mean, I work with a lot, I'm, I'm a consultant to lots of school districts, and my 70th book just came out. And I always tell people that UCLA gave me the base, gave me the foundation to be able to, I mean, this whole notion of publishing, uh, which, uh, which CZ used to always say, man, you're going to be in the university, you got to publish. Uh, that helped me a lot. And I have, ne- I have never stopped running with the whole idea of making sure that I do my research and I publish works that are meaningful to people. And Afrocentricity, people in Philadelphia think it started in Philadelphia. It started right here at the center. Because the idea at the center was that African people should have agency. And that the, the concept of Afrocentricity is about agency. It's about that we are not on the margins of Europe. We are not peripheral to Europe. We are ourselves actors in our own history. And if we are actors in our own history, then we are, in that sense, Afrocentric. So that was the key. And in fact, I wrote a, wrote a paper in 1970, which was called Toward a Black Perspective. At that time, I did not have the word Afrocentricity. But I did have the notion that what I wanted and what I thought we could develop was a perspective that would come out of African people. Okay, Murphy, we, 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 we want other people to uh, get engaged in the conversation, Sorry. so I, that's why I wanted to limit the first right. part to just a, no problem. Uh, a short presentation. And um, by the way, just one correction though, I was also an, an assistant professor, I wasn't a graduate student. I was a graduate student only because I, I got my degree from UCLA. But oh, you got your PhD from UCLA. My PhD from UCLA, oh. but I was a I was an assistant professor for the business school oh. at the time when I was okay, here. I'm sorry. So you and I were were both. I think we'll talk about that later. Okay. Uh, Mary Jane, will you please uh, uh, take the floor? Well, my presentation has to be autobiographical because I was one of those strange African American children who grew up in a 99 percent white society. Uh, My father had died while my mother was pregnant with me. So one of my ways of getting to know him was through the the things my mother kept of his, which were books. He He was like Spingarn. He kept everything he could get his hands on by and about African American people or African descendant people. And I began to read early, probably so I could read daddy's books. Um, my f- major goal was to get out of St. Paul, Minnesota. One, because of its weather, and two, <laughs> and two, because there wasn't enough to fulfill my need for cultural affirmation. So how do I first get out? I, I go to Europe. I, uh, I lived in France for three years, and from there here. I was fluent in French, and so I was hired as an interpreter translator. But I learned more about Africans in, in France than I ever learned in the U.S. Uh, there was a large enough African community, so I was able to get to know them. And um, there were things going on all the time that reminded you that there were people from that continent who had a lot to offer. I came to UCLA in 1955, 
This was a strange place in 1955. <laughs> I kept looking for people of color as I walked around the campus, and the only person I met who was not uh, on the custodial staff at the hospital was, um, this is a problem of age, names go out of your mind. But anyhow, he was a professor in the education department. Wendell Wendell Jones. 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 Uh, When I found out about Wendell Jones, I made a beeline to him to find out everything I could find out about this place, because he'd been here longer than anybody. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the more I talked with my boss in UCLA Extension, where I went, it was University of California Extension, Southern Area in those days. And there was one brilliant man named Dr. Abbott Kaplan, who was from New York, came from a traditional Jewish family, where Papa decides the son will be a rabbi, the son will be a musician, this one will be an educator, and so forth. He was designated to be a rabbi. I don't know how or why, because he, he was anything but a rabbi, but in the, sense, in the sense of a need to educate, he was. He really believed in education. And when I told him about my background and my desires, he just began to make things possible. Um, I can't, re- I can't remember the first grant, but he, the first time there would be money in a grant that he could set aside for me to develop a program, a public program, I grabbed it and I began, my creative process started to work. One of the most exciting evenings I remember is a program I had planned for April 4th, 1968. And as it turns out, that was the day that Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered. And people were all over, from all over Los Angeles, were grateful to have a place to go and celebrate this man. It was one of those most successful programs I ever did. So the word began to get around. I, I don't remember how I met Virgil and Art, but they came into my life, and I found them being mentors to me because they had a younger perspective and um, they had energy. They still have it. Uh, what was I, I? Saunders Redding, who had been part of a program I had done on five campuses of the university called The Negro and the Arts. It was like a vaudeville circuit. We went from campus to campus to campus. This week, literature. Next week, music. Next week, dance, and so on. And uh, I needed help was planning and mounting these programs. I couldn't do it by myself. And there were these eager young men who wanted help, and I put them to work. They liked meeting all these people because they met pioneers in dance and music and literature and so on and so forth who were part of my circuit. One of the members of that circuit was Jay Saunders Redding, who was given the position of, I don't know whether it was interim or permanent director of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he called me up and he said, MJ, write a grant. I said, for what? He says, for whatever you want to do. So I did. I wanted to do a workshop for people who were going to have to teach 
African-American studies, whether they be lawyers or professors of literature or music, whatever. And that's what we had. And Virgil and Art are my assistants. We had two weeks with people from all over the country who just thought they were privileged to spend two weeks at UCLA focused on a subject they had never realized could be focused upon. Um, so I guess when the, the thought of the center came up, <laughs> they thought of me. <laughs> and and they, they are the ones who led me out of extension into programs on the campus, ELP, Upward Down, all of them. And the African American Studies Center grew out of that need to concentrate, study about African Americans and their accomplishments in a pan-African sense, not just the US. And they were ready, they were ready. So that's how I met these two guys who were very important in my life, still are very important in my life, but um, they had ideas, they had energy, and whatever they said, I did. <laughs> Thank you very much. the chair to ask the first question, and then I'm hoping that you'll uh, pick it up. And, and I, the first question I'd like to ask is, uh, Dr., um, Dr. Young, in comparison with, um, you, you, were, you were vice chancellor when I was a student here under Murphy, and you had, you had students like Bob Farrell and Rick Tuttle and myself uh, to deal with back in those days. We were, um, we were constantly um, raising um, uh, ruckus is about the discrimination in Westwood, uh, and I think it was your job to uh, to sort of oversee. I, 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 don't, I don't know if your title was, was <laughs> vice chancellor of student affairs or what, but we see. So we were always running into you back in those days. In comparison with those days, um, which do you think was the toughest for for your role as vice chancellor back in those days or a chancellor um, of the of the of the sixteenth? Vice Chancellor in the early 60s or Chancellor in the late 60s? Chancellors in the early 70s. <laughs> okay. uh, that was the roughest. Um, that was one of your choices. I'm talking about the beginning of the No, I, under, I understand, but uh, yeah. I was whatever. I was Vice Chancellor for whatever happened. Uh, I, I, I think I think that's really what, what it was. Uh, those were those were difficult days. Um, uh, you mentioned and and, and Mary Jane mentioned uh, educational opportunity program and and uh, and upward bound, upward bound, upward bound and, and high potential. You didn't mention high potential. High potential. High potential. Uh, but those were difficult days. Those were the days that, that um, caused Franklin Murphy to say, I'm out of here, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here, Chuck. This is yours. And, and, and I, 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 I think one of the reasons why I, and I, I think things worked fairly well, we got through a lot of tough uh, times better than most. And, and I, I think one of the things was I was young, uh, and I, was, I, was, I had a closer relationship with students than, than uh, uh, might normally have been the case. When back in that, those days, I was only 32, 33, 34 mm -hmm. years old. I became chancellor at 36. 
Um, but you know, here again, you talk about, we're talking about the Af 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 Afro-American Studies Center tonight, but all those other things were swirling around at the time. The Educational Opportunity Program started at UCLA probably before anything like it at almost any university in the country. Mm -hmm. Kenny Washington. Mm -hmm. Washington. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we made some, it, it moved, things were moving slowly, they weren't moving fast enough, but, but effort was being made, and I think that effort paid off in the long run. And, and here again, some, some very unusual things were done. Uh, one of the most unusual was high pot. And, uh, but high pot was important. It, high pot created a lot of problems, and high pot got me in trouble with everybody, and high, high pot was a difficult thing for the faculty, but it primed the pump. And at that point in time, some pump priming was needed. And um, I, it, it was, I, I don't know, those were, those were those were interesting years, but they, they were years, and, and, and what was occurring, well, you know, sit-ins and, and whatever through all that period and the, the various kinds of programs that occurred, um, was a seminal, th that period was a seminal period in American history. And this world is very different today, and the United States is very different today than what it would have been had we not gone through this. True. Yeah, I think I think the um, uh, the Lord just spoke and said that He agreed with you. <laughs> amen. Let's say amen. If, and now I want to throw it open to the to um, for people who have questions of any of the speakers. Say, say which speaker you'd like to ask the question of, and wait for your mic. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to, to hear everyone. Uh, I have a question for uh, Professor Hewitt and one for Professor Asante. Uh, Professor Hewitt, when you were in Paris in the 50s, you know, was that a period of the negritude writers like from Senegal and uh, Amy Cesar from Martinique? Was there, you said there was a lot of African culture in Paris. There was negritude, right? Was there any negritude left, or was that just from the 30s? And if so, because you, you speak in French and you probably know the arts in French from Africa, was that, did that get any expression um, in those days here? You know, the Francophone African cultures with writers like Leopold Sidar Senghor from Senegal, you know, and you seem like you came here with all that culture. So did that get any expression here in dance or literature? It got some, but more through extension. Thank you. It got some, but more through UCLA extension programs, which I was able to mount on various campuses of the university. Five of the then seven or eight campuses received my programs, and almost all of my programs were not just about African-Americans, United States, but they were Pan-African, because by that time I had absorbed, and it was in my flesh and bones, all of the, the, the breadth and scope of this very rich culture. In Paris, my friends, I tried to avoid American friends, because I didn't want to lose my skill at being French. It was my job. So I hung out mostly with the Caribbean and African friends. And uh, so I was constantly learning and, and would go places that I otherwise would probably never have gone. 
Now, the big thing that was frightening uh, was the Algerian war that was going on at the time. And uh, we could be having tea or coffee in the Place Pigalle, and all of a sudden, bang, 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 and we had to run under the tables in order not to get shot. So there was that, but there was always the dominance of culture and multicultural. That's where I'm sure I got that term from that I'm identified with. Now, when I fled from here after the shootout, I went to teach at Occidental College, and I was able to do more of the teaching in a pan-African and uh, multicultural sense because I was free to develop my courses however I liked in the African, uh, in the American Studies program. Unlike a big university like this, you have a room about this big and all, and the faculty have tables and the students come and they sign up for your course. And so I knew the students very well, and I enjoyed that. But I enjoyed working with these guys. I mean, they were always challenging, you know. I had, there, there is one in the African American Studies Center. It's an oral history. I don't know how much of my Pan-African studies are included in there, but it kind of covers my career up to the point of that oral history. Thank you. You're welcome. In those days, in the early days, uh, I read about people like uh, Dr. John Henry Clark and um, Asa Hilliard, who I, I understand is a, a relative of mine from Texas. In those days, in the 70s, did you um, work with... Professors like that, writers like that, sir. Thank you so much. You know, one of the things. Thank you. It's a good question. Uh, no, I, I worked with both of them certainly uh, afterwards quite a lot on the East Coast. Uh, here in the West Coast, we did not have. We, we had. They were rarely here, uh, except Asa Hilliard was originally from Colorado. But um, uh, and he was in San Francisco at one time. But from San Francisco, he went to Georgia and he stayed there most of most of the time. Uh, what what we who we worked with? I mean, outside of uh, the people who were at UCLA, were people like Harold Cruz, who, for example, was um, was quite active uh, on the Journal of Black Studies. Um, we had many battles. Uh, Vincent Harding, for example, was also <laughs> extremely uh, important. But, um, but no, but for Asa and um, John Hendrick, no. But, uh, uh, but, but they're people I highly respect. I, I didn't attend uh, UCLA, but I have attended several panel discussions as well as um, some meetings that were held by African-American students here. And some of the things that I heard from, from them was that even today, they don't feel comfortable on the campus. And some that have said to me that they feel like there is somewhat of a racist undertone. So I wanted to find out from you guys maybe what the university can do to make those students feel more comfortable here on the campus. I didn't know that. What? Take a transfer. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, you, you know, I, I've gotten more cynical as I've gotten older. You know, and um, you, you know, there are some things that are not for everybody. I mean, you know, if you go to work for Microsoft, most of your colleagues are going to be white. And if you're uncomfortable in that environment, then you shouldn't go to work at Microsoft. 
you know, there are, there are excellent black colleges, you know, in, in, in this country, so maybe you should go to Hampton or Howard or somewhere else. I mean, going to school is like going to work. And, you know, you, you have to have an attitude that you're, you're at the place for an education. It would be great if you can party and do other things, too. But that's not why you go to university, you know. And, and I think that there are certain standards that, that UCLA has. And, and, and by the way, you know, like, like I'm a lifetime member of the black alumni. But, you know, I, you know, I look at the graduation statistics and where kids go. And I look at where all the black doctors and stuff come from, and I'm not sure that if kids aren't comfortable that they shouldn't go elsewhere. And that's, that's a global answer. The, the short answer that I think remains was, is that you have to have a critical mass of faculty and administrators at any campus for kids to feel comfortable. Why? Because when they're having those feelings of alienation, then if there's somebody that's, uh, that's in the biology department and they feel they're not getting it, maybe they won't feel comfortable talking to that professor and getting some help in a way they wouldn't otherwise get. Um, and so I've kind of come to the conclusion, conclusion, for example, that almost all the black scientists, engineers, and doctors in America come from black colleges, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that they get mentored by the faculty. So, so to me, the, the, the problem 40 years ago, 45 years ago, and today is that we simply do not have enough of a diverse staff on the campus so that when kids walk around, they feel that they don't belong and there's, a problem. there's somebody that's an adult. There's somebody that has ownership in the institution they can go to. And I think until we change that, you're not really going to change the feeling that kids have on campus. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.